All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is the intro for episode 127. I have Jason Lindgren with me today, and we have Marty Leeds. I had not followed Marty, and Jason put him on my radar, and apparently, uh, well, not apparently, Jason told me he was quite a math guy. I'm not sure that shows so much in the first hour, but by the time we get into the second hour, it's almost like listening to Rain Man. Unreal when we bring up the 440 tuning versus the 432. Uh, Marty launches on literally a savant breakdown of numbers that's quite incredible. Incredible. Anyhow, let's jump in with Jason Lingren and Marty Leeds. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 127. I have Jason Lingren and someone you, many of you have heard of, Marty Leeds. So welcome, Jason. Hello. Hey, man. I'm going to get right to it. Welcome, Marty. Hey, thank you. Thank you for having me. So today here in Rhode Island, we're getting the so-called remnants of the hurricane that was down there. Not much to talk about. I know, Marty, you guys just went some, through some kind of a hurricane that dumped a ton. But before we came online, we were talking, you know, when I, I went to Kauai some years ago and the visibility there blew my mind. I could see more with my naked eyes in the skies than I could with a telescope in San Diego. And you and I were talking about that. I think, man, you're living in my dream spot. If I could live there with with my telescope and I will soon have the ability to begin using it again, that would be my dream. But have you noticed the visibility where you at at night? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, you know, I'm looking out at the ocean right now where we're staying. Um, it's just a rental, but literally, there's, I mean, we're basically by sea view and we're kind of at the end of the road on the other side of the big island. So you walk down our lane and the, you know, the the dark rift of the Milky Way, if you will, is visible every single night. No light pollution. I mean, you can pick out, you know, my, my parents were just here. So I, I walked with my mom every night and I was just basically showing them like, hey, that's Cepheus, that's Cassiopeia, that's Draco, that's Scorpio right there. I mean, you can pick them out perfectly. So this, this spot here is amazing for starting. Stargazing. And then, of course, if you go up to uh, Mauna Kea, I mean, you're basically going from sea level to, what, 14,000 feet or whatever. So, and, and, you know, most more often clear skies, you know, especially because of the trade winds. So, stargazing out here is freaking amazing. So. Well- well, Marty, I got to put this on the table then. Um, all my years since like the mid-90s when I've had big scopes and I've been looking up, even being in California deserts, which are supposed to be great for view, it didn't compare to Hawaii. But when I got to Rhode Island, um, there was we were in the fall. It was just getting cold. I needed a jacket, and I went out through a bulkhead, which is basically a hole in the ground. And as I looked up, it was the perfect night. We had not had a full moon. There was no moonlight pollution. We're far from city lights here. And I could actually see the Milky Way going from the northern sky to the southern sky. And for the first time, I saw the arc that is referenced in like Omar Khayyam, all the old texts, sure. calling it the Domer arc of the sky. Have you ever seen this where you are? And I will preface it by saying I think you need the Milky Way uh, to be able to detect <clears throat> the arc. Have you ever seen it? Yeah. In fact, the last few nights we saw it. In fact, I pointed it out to my mom because she had never seen it. So, yeah, it's like the goddess Newt, right? The Egyptian goddess that like arcs over the sky, that's sort of the dome of the sky. Yeah, I was, you know, I was I was kind of telling her about basically the dome, if you will, and perspective. and, And because, you know, from where they are, they live in Wisconsin. So. They, you know, if they look up at basically like a 45 degree angle, they're going to see uh, Ursa Major, right? The Big Dipper. Well, here, half of the Big Dipper was behind the horizon. 
so I was I was showing her that's like, hey, we're farther away from the North Pole, so all of those stars dip down, you know. And so that gave like it, 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 she immediately got it, you know what I mean? For somebody that it really isn't into conspiracies and doesn't really know you know astronomy and things like that and cosmology, it was like very easy to understand. And so when I showed her, hey, this is what they call the Milky Way galaxy, but what is really that you know the ancients really called the dark rift, yeah. From corner to corner, you can see it stretched. So several nights in a row, I see that. So it's amazing, man. So it t- it blew my mind, and my problem was is um, I'm thinking, how can I record this? Problem is, is a camera's monocular, not binocular. And as I begin to reason it out, you really need binocular vision to get the arcing uh, idea into a picture. But one thing that was stunning when I was in Hawaii is when you first look up, there are so many stars, you can't identify anything when you've just come from San Diego. Um, and San Diego Constellation have four or five stars, you can see it, but uh, it, I don't know if you're familiar with globular clusters. The, the mainstream claim is they're the most ancient things in the galaxy, but to look at one through a scope is breathtaking because it's like a gazillion stars stuck in the space of a quarter. But I remember being able to see a globular cluster in Hawaii with my naked eye, and mm-hmm. I don't remember if it was the one in Hercules, but have you ever seen this? I don't know if I've seen that particularly, but I mean, basically, I've just been going out, and it's like every night, you know, it's like you can clearly see the path of the zodiac. You know, you can clearly see the gap. You can point out constellations left and right, and it's it's so amazing because you forget there's some, there's there's um you know say for lack of a better term whatever but there's definitely definitely a spiritual connection to literally just looking up and stargazing at the stars i don't know if it puts you in perspective to where you are or just i don't know just looking at god's heavens there's something about it and the fact that that's lost in our world the fact that like most people can't don't even understand that hey there's some major points to the star you know just those little things that people do can't even know nowadays is is pretty pretty remarkable you know i it's we uh, on our new property we have this little hill that goes up that they actually have like a sun deck and we're actually going to build a little star observatory just so we can go up you know at least a couple nights a week and just look at god's heavens if you will so marty do you actually have a telescope or are you just going out and looking at things with the naked eye and appreciating the beauty um, I do not have a telescope as of yet, but that's definitely on the roster for sure. Same for me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I might want to get one of those cool 900 P pick, whatever they're called. One thousands. I think they have them now. I think I want to get one of those first, but yeah, a telescope is definitely, definitely on the agenda. Yeah. The Nikon was the P 900. They just came out with a new model, the P 1000, which has an even greater zoom. And yeah. you know, they only put a 16 megapixel sensor in it, which was a little disappointing to me, but maybe they don't want us to be able to blow it up a million times and be able to see better details. Probably. <laughs> well, I, I would add this guys, if you're, you know, I'm, I have a, an old Dobsonian that's like 10 inches I can give to Jason. Um, it doesn't track, but Marty, if you're going to set a thing up and really do it, I would suggest Look at Schmidt cast grain telescopes because, in my view, they're the best for filming. Do not buy Mead. Always look at Celestron or other manufacturers first. Mead is now crap. Uh, used to be my go-to scope. The one I have from the 90s still works perfect, but they're now made in Mexico by a Chinese company. But my point here is with a Schmidt cast grain or an SCT-style scope, then you get a DSLR camera. And in my case, I can get 36 to 50 megapixels. Um, And that makes all the difference if you get something interesting and you go to the editing room. So I'll add all that. Okay, okay. Yeah, I'll have to check all that out. Do you just hook your USB right to the the actual telescope, or how does that work? 
So here's how it works. With a Schmidt Cassegrain scope, it's a short tube, the lights being folded back and forth. Um, people always say things about digital telescopes. It's not the optics. There's nothing about the optics digital. A mirror bounces the light back and forth. You take the rear cell and you unscrew it where the eyepiece would go and you use a T-ring on your camera. You pull the lens off okay. your DSLR and you screw straight to the back and then an HDMI cable off the camera will give you any size monitor you want to look at. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Cool. Yeah, that's definitely something I got to get into because, yeah, perfect place to do it. That's for sure. One of the reasons we moved to Hawaii. That and just to get off grid. Um, yeah, the place that we got is, is we're trying to go completely off grid. So we've got, I just installed, that's why people haven't heard from me in the last couple of weeks. I've been installing solar panels and I just built a a bathroom and a compost toilet out there and we got water catchment and then we got tons of food growing on our acreage there so we got like mangoes and papayas and limes and lemons i mean just you name it we got this huge list of stuff that's growing there so that's what my lady and i have been really uh, focused on in the last couple of years something we wanted to do and we just finally just bit the bullet and did it and then you know moving here has been quite the quite the experience because we got here just as the volcano erupted i'm sure some people know this but basically we moved into our place on the other side of the island just as the volcano erupted so i was literally like putting my books on the shelf and next thing you know we're like grabbing all of our shit and putting a 72 hour bag together and, and getting out of there so it's been <laughs> it's been pretty crazy being yeah it's been nuts but um yeah we finally got a place and it's about five minutes from the ocean it's it's magical so so hopefully we can still get some solar unless they dust the sky with chemtrails and hopefully we can drink the water unless the water's full of chemtrails i don't know <laughs> you know marty i'd really like to back up and start off with how you got involved with all of this opening your mind getting into the mathematics of course that you're phenomenal at who are you where'd you come from Oh, okay. Who am I? Um, well, okay. So basically, you know, the story is, and I, as I've come to learn, learning more about astrology, it kind of basically happened during my Saturn return, as I found. Um, Saturn goes through its like 29 year cycle. And basically about my mid 20s, late 20s, I basically just started questioning everything, you know? I really wanted to know what the hell I was doing here, where I was going, why my life was so screwed up, you know, it was, was it just me? Was it the world around me? That sort of stuff. So basically that led me into dealing directly with science because I, I, I wasn't really raised um, religious at all, right? Like, I mean, my extended family is sort of like Roman Catholic, but I was never raised in the church. I was never taught about God. I was never taught about any of those things. So when I went into trying to figure out what was going on in my world, I basically went into science, like hard, you know, scientism as we know it as, as it is now. And so I studied all sorts of things, astronomy and astrology or astronomy and, and cosmology and quantum physics and all that sort of stuff. And literally like within even like two years of, of studying that stuff, I wasn't really getting any of the answers that I wanted to. They weren't providing any answers as to the, as to the big question, which is why, you know, right. And so that ended up leading me into, I started looking into what would be considered esoteric or occult. Um, things like alchemy, hermeticism, masonry, you know, sort of things like that to try to figure out because there was a big mystery there. And, you know, as far as their symbology, as far as, um, you know, the, the, the rituals, as far as, you know, just all of that sort of stuff. There's just a, a great mystery, especially around alchemy and hermeticism and that sort of stuff. So I, I just dove headfirst into that. And 
the one thing that kept coming up again and again after studying the occult was the reference to numbers. Um, you, it's like if you paid attention, you couldn't get beyond it because there was always like, especially studying like comparative mythology or, or comparative cultures, right? The prominence of the number seven is, is you know, it's like you trip over it, you know, studying this stuff because it's so prevalent, right? And so then, you know, going through that whole trajectory and realizing I was like, well, geez, I don't understand shit about math. I'm terrible at math, right? I got a C in college algebra. That's how bad at math that I was, <laughs> right? So then I had to go back and be like, okay, well, I have to I have to study this. I have to learn it from the ground floor. So basically what I did is I just started learning math myself. And that and I was literally like taking a notebook and writing multiplication tables again. You know, like, you know, basically just going one times nine equals nine, two times nine equals 18. I was literally like basically teach, you know, autodidact teaching myself again. And so just years and years of doing this, all of this stuff sort of just culminated into what I'm doing now. And of course, because you're dealing with the what would be called the sacred sciences or what would be called um, initiatory orders and that sort of stuff. Of course, because you're dealing with that, that is going to lead you into all the other conspiracies because so many of them are, are you know, they're they're anchored in that sort of study, right? To me, um, one of the big conspiracies of the world is actually hiding the sacred sciences. And the reason that they're hiding the sacred sciences is because the sacred sciences tell you about the sacredness of you. So um, that's that's basically my my course. You know, that's where it led me today. And numbers just made so much sense. The reason I focus so much on numbers, not only did I see it prevalent in so many of these different cultures and mythologies and secret societies and, and spiritual practices and occult orders and stuff like that. And only, not only did I see like numbers there, but I also recognized that numbers were the one universal language that it didn't matter where you lived, when you lived, what part of the geographical plane you lived on, what time frame, what eon, what age, what language you spoke, what color you were, what gender you were, it didn't matter. Numbers were going to be the same. Numbers were a universal language. And so I, I, I recognized, hey, if I learn that, then I'm going to be learning something that is universal. And that's basically how I got here. So I, I got to ask, Marty, you know, for, for my part, what happened is I began to challenge things. And at first, um, things didn't line up. I always thought, hey, I, I don't know enough. It's me. I'm the problem here. That's why I can't make these things work out. Over time, you begin to realize it's not you. And over mm -hmm. time, you begin to realize that you have the human ability, everyone does, to challenge and see if things are logically there. And that's when I began to question the scientism, the Hubble Space Telescope, space, any number of things. But I want to know if this is true for you. By the time I had come back in my 20s, I was aware of hermeticism and all these other things, but it was a little later before I came back to it seriously, and I realized I can't poke holes in like the hermetic in the seven hermetic principles. I can't do it. Um, and then when I started looking at the foundational ideas of like the old alchemical four element ideas, these were things that seemed to hold water on their own right. Um, I mean, so they kind of became foundational to me, but overall what it meant to me was nature as the foundation. So... What did you find as a foundation to work from? Okay, so this is this is part of that story as well, because I wasn't religious at all. So I wasn't Buddhist, I wasn't Taoist, I wasn't Hindu, I wasn't Christian, I wasn't none of that stuff, right? When I started studying these things, I realized that they were always pointing towards an intelligence within nature, right? Which for me was Gnosticism, because basically whenever I whenever I had like a little epiphany or 
you know, a moment of clarity or whatever the hell you want to call it. It always came from some source in nature. It was always something that I got from the intelligence in nature. And we could talk about the degree of phylotaxis. We can talk about the, the prominence of the triangle. One of the first, I, I mean, I remember it as clear as the day it happened. One of the first like major revelations I ever had about basically the predominance of the base 10 system came from a trillium flower. I was literally, I was stoned as hell, by the way, but (laughs) regardless (laughs) of that, that's that's more nature. nature. Exactly. Right. But no, I was, I was just walking in the woods. Like I would do every single, I mean, I used to take walks like in the woods pretty much five times a week, you know, long walks two, two, three hours at a time. A lot of times, like after work or before work, that sort of stuff. So I was just walking in the woods and, you know, in Oregon, the trillium flowers are just, they when they bloom, they're just everywhere, you know, and there's just these beautiful flowers. So, and there was like a central stem that went up into the flower, right? And then around that stem, there would be, that's why they're called trillium, they're tri, meaning three, there'd be three sets of three, three um, leaves. So one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And I recognized right away as I was studying math, I was like, holy shit. That's that's the base 10 system, which is 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, separated into a trinity. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Now, that doesn't sound like people are listening. They're like, so what? You know, it doesn't really sound that profound. But the fact is, is a fundamental that is actually on your hands, I found on a flower. Now, why that's important is later, you know, to me, that was a Gnostic moment, right? I received something mystically from nature. It wasn't given to me by a priest or a preacher or a teacher or anything like that. It was like nature was trying to tell me something. Well, if there is an intelligent force within creation, which I'm sure you and most listeners believe there is, that means that if I receive that information from that flower, then who did I receive that information from? Well, God, right? That's that's how I took it. I was like, okay, well, if I'm, I'm receiving some sort of intelligence directly from nature, that mystical Gnostic experience, then where is that intelligence coming from? Who is the great teacher? Well, that's God. Now, later I, ter- I found out that that zero, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, that split up into a trinity just happened to be encoded directly within, broken up syllabically, by the way, in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus so, and I wasn't, I'm not a Christian, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I wasn't a Christian at the time, I should say. Now I consider myself a Gnostic Christian because I come to Christianity with that backing of mysticism and nature behind me. And so it was just this, this fantastic moment where I was learning something, like I said, not from a teacher, from nature itself, you know, um, yeah, nature, you know, and, and then you find out things like, I mean, I know we haven't covered the cipher or anything like that, but I've got several videos on this. There's a ton of stuff that's encoded within the name of Jesus Christ that's all found in nature. The degree of phylotaxis, which is the which is the degree that leaves grow around a plant, that is encoded down to the decimal place in the name of Christ. The 365 days of a solar year, that's encoded in the name of Christ. The 12 ages of the zodiac and the 30 degrees of each age, that's encoded in the name of Jesus Christ. The way you even map that the degrees of the sun, like the hours of the sun, can be done on your hands, which is exactly points right back to the decimal system. That's encoded in the name of Jesus Christ. So all of these things that I found, first and foremost, first and foremost, not within the Christian religion, not in the churches, not in the Holy Bible, I found them in nature. Then where did I validate those in a spiritual context, if you will? Well, they're encoded mathematically in the Holy Bible. Now, the, the, the problem is, I know I'm ranting a little bit here, but the problem is, is nary a a literalist Christian has a clue, a single clue about any of this shit. And that to me is an enormous problem. Well, 
I, I, you know, I had a very similar experience. Um, for me, it came from sacred geometry, but I've always grown mm-hmm. things, so I totally get because that's what got me started. Um, as a matter of fact, it was a passion flower um, that got me started. I was growing passion flowers and passion fruit at the time, uh, and bamboo and other things. But what I found is exactly what you're stating: um, that all of a sudden, all these what I'll call natural science ideas were encoded in these religious scriptures. But I went further, and I began to find that everywhere I looked, in every old major tradition, the same ideas were reiterated in different ways, which probably reflected culturally. But to get back to the base of the discovery, as I'd been looking at these passion flowers, and there's a religious connotation there, too, um, Mm -hmm. because they're supposed to symbolize the ideas that are held in the New Testament, but I was looking at sacred geometry because the claim was being made that the line started it all. Uh, It was a Masonic point of view, and that was male. Therefore, males came first. And I was breaking it down saying, wait a minute, this doesn't work because in sacred geometry, the first thing you're ever going to have is a point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I began to work it out, you could just as easily have a circle as a line, but then the epiphany moment came when I realized you have to have three points to make anything. You can mm-hmm. have a point, you can have a line, but you get no, no shape, no form, no substance until you get to three. And that was a similar thing. And again, it served me well, and it started with my observation of a flower in the same way. Um, it's a little more unusual of a flower. I'm sure you're familiar with it. My point here being is, as I began to do what you did, where does this come from? Well, it comes from nature. Well, what does that mean? How is it in nature? Then I started to look at the religious aspects. For my part, everywhere I looked um, to any great degree, the long-lasting, overarching major religions were all housing the same ideas with regard to natural science. I absolutely agree. A perfect example of of that is, um, well, a lot of this is Kabbalistic, which that's an entire conversation right there. But, you know, just looking in the name of Jesus, right? If you multiply Jesus using a septenary cipher, cipher, which is what, you know, I, I teach on my channel and what I actually got from the Holy Bible. But if you look at the name of Jesus, it's uh, J-E-S-U-S, which is 45666, right? So 666 is encoded in the name of Jesus in the English canon, right? If you multiply four times five times six times six times six, you get the number 4,320. 4,320 is Jesus multiplied. Well, that's two cubes. A cube is uh, six sides, which has 360 degrees. And so the the geometry of a cube, the degrees of a cube is 2,160. Well, two cubes of the paradise is 4,320. So this key number, 216 or 2,160, right, is encoded in the name of Jesus, and it's obviously a, it's a reference to the cube. Well, 216 is 6 times 6 times 6, right? So 6 times 6 times 6 is 216. Okay, well, that's all found in the name of Jesus. Okay, so what, right? Well, let's go to the Norse myth, right? Um, Odin hung on the Yggdrasil tree for nine days. Right. So Odin is like the key mythological. He's like sort of not the Messiah figure, if you will. But in the Norse mythology, he's the one of the key characters. Right. Hangs on the tree for nine days. Well, nine days is 24 hours a day times nine is 216. So Odin hung on the Yggdrasil tree for 216 hours. In other words, he hung on the Yggdrasil tree for six times six times six. Now, that's encoded 
it, but you know, once again, where's where you're saying, Hey, we find all of this, this sacred information, the sacred knowledge structure, which I say is based on mathematics and geometry. Of course, that's just my claim. But if you go to the quadrivium and the trivium, they're going to say the same shit, right? You see these things encoded within all of these, which means that, you know, all of these different cultures, the, uh, a lot of the, the predominant religions, the, you know, uh, that spiritual practices that have lasted, you see them encoded in, which means to me, which told me, hey, there's a universality here. There's something that's beyond the cultural pretenses of of these religions, and there's something that's that's deeper to me that was found with mathematics and could actually be verified with mathematics and geometry. So I think you make a critical point here, and so I'm going to take it a step further. In my view, you're absolutely right. In my view, all these traditions are remembering a time we know little about when natural sciences, or maybe we would call it alchemy, who knows what we would call it back in the day when it was the main thing going, not scientism or some version of science like we have today. But when you look at the idea of a culture, um, you know, moving away from those ideas, all these ideas being hidden in scriptures and mathematically encoded in any number of ways, when we get up to the modern era, there's some tells. Um, are you familiar with the idea of the angles of sorrow and the angles of joy? And I'll, I'll outline them really quickly in the older traditions and alchemical traditions and even some hermetic traditions. The angles of sorrow would be 90 degrees or basically what you get in a cube or a square or a rectangle. And then the equilateral triangle would represent the angles of joy. And so when you correspond a time when we see some remnants of it um, from a time we're not that familiar with way back and where where and how we live now, almost everything in the modern era is based on the angles of sorrow. Do you, do you follow where I'm going here? Yes, a few things on that. Um, we are in the, the, the plane of existence that we're in right now, and this is definitely a spiritual philosophy that I basically have come to understand because I, I just believe it's true. We're in, in the realms in the hand to speak poetically, in the realms and in the arms of the Heavenly Father, the God above, the great artificer, the great architect, whatever you want to call that thing, right? That which cannot be named, right? Has no name, has cannot be defined, cannot be given a term. It's really sort of unspeakable. In the arms of that God, there is no pain. There is no suffering. There is no there is no polarity because it's all one. There is not a left and right and not a yin and a yang. You're unified with that grand architect. When you're great creator, whatever you want to call it, when you're down in the plane of existence where we are right now, you're surrounded by death. You're surrounded by sorrow. Everything around you is living and dying. You are dying as we're speaking, right? So in this plane of existence, right, this is where death occurs. This is where pain occurs. This is where the devil lives, right? Because the devil or Satan, if you will, whatever you want to call that thing, does, is, has no place in the arms of God. It's only down here that the human experience with his individuated consciousness and his, his willpower has to go up and face these evils. And that's, I think, what the human experience is all about, to be put, to be thrown against the barricades of, of, of evil, you know, to, to um, go through the trials and tribulations of life and face them and be a warrior, right? So when we talk about the angles of sorrow, right, you, you mentioned that they're 90 degrees. And the reason that there would be sorrowful is because the 90 degrees, just like in the Freemasonic Square encompasses, 
You have the compass pointing up to the heavens, which tells you about, of course, the spiritual realms, which is the, uh, you could say, intangible. You can't touch it. You can't feel it. You're never going to touch the sun. You're never going to touch the moon. You're never going to touch the stars. You can't you can't measure those things, right, in any sort of, like, can't put a tape measure to them. That's the compass, right? Down here is the square, right? And the square is what? It's 90 degrees. It's very measurable. It's the material plane. We can touch it. We can taste it. We can feel it. We can measure it. We can mold it. We can sculpt this reality, right? And in that place that we have all this power, right, this willpower, this individ individuating consciousness, this is where sorrow is. And it's true. It's true, right? I mean, my Jennifer just lost, my fiance just lost her father, right? And it's only in this plane of existence, only in the material existence where we deal with sorrow, right? And so that is one of the, the spiritual lessons that are behind that. Now, the problem with the problem with secret societies and the problem with people that are withholding sacred knowledge right now is that most of these organizations, as far as I can tell, have been perverted. So what I see they do, and this is what I teach on my channel, of course, is I see them taking these spiritual contexts, these spiritual precepts, and perverting them and distorting them and hiding them and twisting them so that we don't understand their true nature. Um, so hopefully I answered that question a little bit. Do you, do, you, do you get what I'm saying there? Yeah, I absolutely do. And I would point out that a lot of those guys in the black robes at the front of a church were never taught the things that we're talking about. So they don't even know they're omitting it. But to get back, to the way that you express that, the way that I choose to express it is basically that right now we find ourselves in a cycle of hardship and necessity. It's almost like a boot camp. Um, your allegory uh, was a bit more religious, but it's basically the exact same idea. But when I took the idea of sorrow and the idea of joy and clearly associated with our 3D material reality. We're here for a reason. That's part of this reason. We have polarity um, and polarity is at odds with each other, but it requires each other. So it kind of outlines where we are. But I started to try to use plants to think about why the angles of sorrow are the angles of sorrow and why the angles of joy are the angles of joy. And I began to work it out. And then I found texts that backed up what I had come to. If we took like a square, a Masonic square, so it's got an open end and it comes to a corner, that's a 90 degree angle. So if we shot energy down both open ends towards the corner, when that energy met, it would collide. That is in fact the reason for the angles of sorrow. Now, if you take the angles of joy, that could be represented by a Y. So if we shot energy down or like a plant, you know, taking sunlight or taking energy up and the energy source came down the Y, it would converge at the base of the Y in harmony and move on. And so from a natural aspect of the natural world, that is how I came to understand the idea. But clearly the overarching ideas that you expressed is, yeah, we're all going to die. There's hardship here. We're in a 3D material material reality. And that's all there is for right now. And we have to go through this. It's it's also interesting, too, when you t when you take because um, I know you you subscribe to the idea of as above, so below. When you take, you know, the symbol of the Freemasonic square and compasses, for for instance, you, you basically have that the compasses and the square merged together, right? You have the compass pointing up to the spiritual realms, which I said is is intangible, it's immaterial, it's, um, you know, you can't touch the stars, that sort of thing. Down here, you can touch and feel and taste everything, right? And that would be the, 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 comp or the square, excuse me, the 90 degrees. But really what you have is the merging of those two. You have the merging of what would be the circle and the square. 
right? And that's really what you are as a human being. And as I look out into the horizon right now, and I look at the Pacific Ocean, I see that 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 the the canopy of the heavens above, the firmament, the heart. What did you call the hard and fast barrier, or something yeah, the like hard, that? I, a hard fast barrier. You, you yeah, might yeah. refer to it as the firmament. Yeah, the dome or whatever, right? I see that dome, and that is reaching down towards the horizon, and I see the the material plane reaching up to meet right at my eyeline, right? Well, that to me says that what what I'm experiencing right now as I walk through this this earthly existence covered by the heavens, that I'm the merging, I and you and everybody that's listening are the merging of heaven and earth. We are the merging of everything that's above and everything that's below into one unified being. And so to me, that even tells you even greater about, hey, you're not, you are in a place of sorrow. Yes, you are in a place of death. You're in a place of hardships, you know, all of that sort of thing. But you are also covered by God, if you will. And so there's that, there, to me, there's that beauty of the balance between, well, which, which is, of course, alchemical, it's Native American, it's Aboriginal, it's an idea that's prevalent, of, I mean, ubiquitous all across the world, of that you're the merging of spirit and matter. And you are, you know. And so that's really what, um, you know, the in, in one sense, what the Freemasonic Square Encompasses is actually talking about. You mentioned that um, the angles of joy would be the equilateral triangle, Right. Right. So, well, interesting, an equilateral triangle would be 60 degrees, 60 degrees, and 60 degrees, which if you broke that down into decimal reduction, that would be what? 666. So isn't it interesting that the very number that we're taught is completely um, tied to evil and nefarious and Satan and devil and things like that just happens to be found in the angles of joy? Why you know what yeah, I mean? you happens to be critical, found in Jesus, right. you know, interesting. Absol- you, know? you you point out a critical miscommunication, and even in most renderings, I've read the Bible so many times, so many versions, mostly what you see is it referred to as the number of a man, um, mm-hmm. how it became to be so evil um, in the way that we think about it, I think, is a lot to do with Hollywood. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know where, where you think, but also the idea of the cube, clearly, clearly so much of a 3D material existence and the hardships that we find can can easily be associated but it's a good point and if you take it out in numerology or actually if you look at astrology where the idea that the sky is the only clock we have here in other words i can go out every day and look at my wristwatch when it tells me it's noon and guess what it's not noon it might get it right once or twice a year but almost every day that i ever go out into the world and look at my clock and it tells me it's noon it is not noon truly if i want to know when noon is i have to look up at the sun and the moon and the stars, the only true clock we have here. And so when you begin to work out the numerology and all these things, um, what you begin to find is angles have such a bearing on a 3D existence. And even in the older ideas of astrology, if you find the angles of sorrow, that's usually viewed as a dim thing. Uh, The shallower angles are almost always viewed as a more holistic thing. But I don't know how much of that you've actually looked at. No, you're you're dead on because um, in astrology, like, you know, if you want to get I mean, if you take any of this stuff into consideration or take it seriously, which I do, you know, if like you want to get married. Right. You never want to get married where like the sun is or the sun is square with Saturn or something. You know what I mean? Because that's a harsh angle. And right. so you're you're absolutely right. I mean, this is something that's a quintessential within astrology. I'm not I don't do astrology. I don't, you know, do astrological charts, but I know enough about it to know that that's, you know, pretty standard. Um, 
And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. That's those hard, hard degrees that you want to actually stay away from. Interesting thing in, in, um, in using a septenary cipher, like I said, I know we haven't covered the cipher, but hopefully people are familiar enough with it. But if you just count on your hands, like so if you just count one, two, three, four, five on your left hand, and then you go six, seven, eight, nine, ten on your right hand, right? For uh, eight fingers and two thumbs, one, two, three, four, five on your left hand would equal 89. And then five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten on your right hand equals 91. So you have 89 in your left hand and you have 91 in your right hand. Well, what's the number between 89 and 91? It's 90. It's the it's literally the number 90, that angle of sorrow, which is the angle of materiality too, of course, right? It is right between your two hands, right? Well, 89 and 91 equals 180. So in other words, if you just count using a septenary cipher, if you just count 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, just what's right in front of you, what God gave you right in front of you, and you use the English cipher to it, you get 180, right? And between that is an angle of sorrow. Well, what's 180? Well, it's the angle of a triangle, right? So... In your hands, you have the angle of sorrow and the angle of joy right in your two hands. Now, even further, you take 180, that's, you know, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, add that up, it's 180. When you and another person join hands together, that's 180 plus 180. Well, what does that equal? Well, that's the 360 degrees of a circle. And what does the circle represent in sacred geometry? Heaven. Heaven. So... There's there's a deep you know spiritual philosophy that's encoded within the numbers just by the simple fact of two people joining hands together, right? And and actually, what would be created would be the 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 you know you could say 360 degrees of a square too, of course, but 360 degrees of a circle, right? So um, this philosophy, as we were talking about, you find it in all these other cultures, right? It can be found, again, like if you go to Angkor Wat, right? So you say, okay, well, Marty, that's just English. You're just putting a septenary cipher to English and counting on your fingers. Who gives a shit, right? Now, if you go to Angkor Wat, there's actually, um, if you look, there's, I, th- I don't know how many bridges there are to that go across like the moat to go to the actual temple, right? But if you go, you'll you'll see on the bridges, you'll have on one side of the bridge, you'll have 54 statues, and on the other side of the bridge, you'll have 54 statues. So anytime you cross the bridge at Angkor Wat, there'll be 108 statues, right? Well, this is the exact same thing that I just talked about because you have 27 bones in your right hand and you have 27 bones in your left hand. So your hands together equal the total bones in your hands are 54. That means when two people join hands in love and connection and union and care and compassion, bringing God down to the material realm is what we're doing here. That's what we're talking about when we talk about love, right? You got 54 here. You join hands with another person that's 54. What did you just create? You created 108 bones. So the very thing that we're talking about that's encoded within things like the Freemasonic Square Encompasses, things that like uh, uh, the, the, la- the very language we're speaking are also encoded half across the globe, <clears throat> half across the flat plane over in Angkor Wat. And all you have to do is do some basic mathematics. So, you know, to me, that's very powerful because ultimately what it talks about is connection, union, love, you know. 
Well, it, it, you pointed out a critical thing. I mean, most rosaries have 108 beads. If you go to Tibet and talk mm -hmm. to a Buddhist master, he's holding a rosary with 108 beads. But you brought up Angkor Wat, and that's case in point. Um, you go to a place like that, and you see the kind of higher-minded construction that was put in there, the level of ability um, that was brought to bear there, and yet where do we find ourselves in the modern age? I mean, we're all living in drywall, 90-degree cubes. Um, so it, it is illustrative of a time probably when people were much more driven by nat the natural world and the natural sciences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think this knowledge system has actually been left for us all over our world. I think it's been encoded in all sorts of things. We can go to the Great Pyramid of Giza; it's encoded there. We can go down. We can go to the deck of cards; it's encoded there. It encoded there. We can go to the billiards; it's encoded there. We can go to Chichen Itza; it's encoded there. We can go to our language, the language that's been passed down to us, which I think is fairly, after studying it for many years now, I think it's fairly angelic. That's why it would be called English, if you will, but I think it's fairly angelic. Um, you know, it's encoded there as well. I think this sacred science, which basically talks about, for lack of a better term, peace, you know, for lack of a better term, um, is encoded everywhere. And it's encoded mathematically. And we could we could go on and on and on about different examples of this. But this, the same thing that's encoded in Chichen Itza Right. The same thing that's encoded in that temple is also encoded in the deck of cards. And it's also encoded in Jesus and his 12 disciples. And the, 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 the main the, the real tragic thing, the real tragic thing is, is what I'm starting to really harp on lately, too, is the literalist dogmatized Christians who are completely and utterly brainwashed will reject all of this wholeheartedly on the face because it's all, quote unquote, occult. It's all, quote unquote, devil worship. And they don't have a damn clue. You know, they have traded the esoteric for the exoteric, and then they've gotten cocky or, or you know, self-righteous about the exoteric. And that's such a, such a tragedy to me. You know, Marty, we've mentioned secret society several times already. It seems that the, especially the old, old, old secret societies, the mysteries, as they called them, mystery religions, mystery babble and all that, it seems to me, from what I've been able to uncover, that what they were holding so sacred, it was real mathematics. And I was wondering if you're aware of any of that and how that may have been perverted over the years to whatever Freemasons really teach these days, which I doubt very much is exactly what was taught. Goodness knows only how long ago. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the conclusion I've come to as far as like modern Masonry. I mean, if if I wanted to con if I felt like that was still a noble tradition, I would I would be a Mason, but I'm not. If that says anything, you know, um, I see that the majority, you know, when you look at we'll talk about masonry explicitly. Right. Masonry isn't really what people think it is. What it's become is a, is that's a whole nother conversation because I really don't know. I'm not a mason or anything like that. But what masonry says it's supposed to be is a recapitulation of the ancient mystery schools, which was there to basically tell the human being to put that person on a path to initiation, to the higher realms, to higher consciousness, to, to greater understanding, right? Like I said, what it's become nowadays, I don't have a clue. I really don't. That's what it was supposed to be. The thing I do know, and I can, you can even see it very prevalent in our day and age. In fact, we can't even have certain conversations because we have to be we have to be secretive, right? The second hour, we're probably going to talk about certain things we can't talk about in the first hour because we have to be secret about it, right? Because of the, you know the inquisition of of information nowadays. Well, that inquisition of information 
has gone out throughout history, right? So a lot of times, a lot of information has to be hidden and concealed so that it can be protected. I think a lot of initiatory orders, not not all of them, of course, but a lot of these secret orders have been, that was their goal was to keep this information alive, to keep it hidden in such a way that it would not be completely destroyed. The problem is, is whenever you have an order like that, and we'll talk about, like I said, speaking of Freemasonry particularly, whenever you have an order like that, you can guarantee that it is going to be infiltrated by evil people. You can guarantee it, right? And I think ultimately that's what's happened. I think that's what's happened with the Christian religion. I think that's what's happened with Judaism. I think that's what's happened with Masonry. Pretty much anywhere you look in our world right now, to, to, to say it bluntly, the rats have gotten in and have destroyed the place. You know, So when I went into looking at Masonry and things like that, I, I didn't I didn't go to YouTube and said, oh, look, all these people are saying Masonry is evil. Yeah, Masonry might be evil now, but what, what was the impetus behind it? Why is there a secret order? Why do they have the you know the, the symbolism that they do and things like that? What is at the what is at the base of that? Well, as you said, mathematics is at the base of that. And in fact, masonry, the term masonry used to be synonymous with geometry. And that comes right from the history of Freemasonry, Albert Mackey. Um, and so What's at the core of that? You look at the Pythagorean mystery schools. That was all about math, right? You look at the Freemasonic schools. That's all Egyptology. Look at all of Egypt. I mean, it's all geometry and mathematics, right? So there had to be something within that core study that pointed directly to God. Well, I mean, I'm here to say I, I've, I've discovered it within myself anyway, you know. Now, I'm kind of curious as far as your views on Gnosticism. Is it more of a philosophical sort of thing for you, or are you taking it in a more literal context, because you've mentioned Jesus and God and a lot of the normal mainstream religious names and contexts. Mm-hmm. How do you view it? Is it just allegory, or are you taking it a little more literal? Well, it's it's, mystic- it's mysticism par excellence, you know? I mean, that's what it is. Um, Jesus himself said it was an inner teaching. He said he, spe- he speaks in allegories, he speaks in parables, and that those who see will see, and those who hear not, they won't hear, you know, neither do they understand, that kind of thing in Matthew, right? To, when The idea that you would take the, the biblical stories as literal, to me, is so laughable, which isn't to say there isn't truth there, it isn't to say there isn't literal explanations for earth and things like that. That's not what I'm saying. But the idea that the the, the Bible is a literal history book is so freaking laughable to me. You know, the fact that modern day Christianity hinges the entirety of their belief and their faith in Christianity on the historicity of Jesus Christ is utterly ridiculous. It's utterly ridiculous. I don't take that stance at all. And not taking that stance has actually allowed me to do, you know, decipher the Bible in this way. So to, to address the Christians out there that might be listening to this, do I believe that Jesus Christ was a literal man? Guess what? I, nor Crow or Jason or you, have no idea whether he actually lived or not. No idea. Do I believe he actually did? Probably not. But the point is not whether he lived at all. The point is what was passed on to us in these stories. 
Well, what's passed on to us in these stories is sacred sciences. And by sacred sciences, I mean that all of the sciences can be understood as one holy unified science, which means you have to take astrology and astronomy and geometry and mathematics and phonology and, and etymology and linguistics and symbolism, and you have to take bi biology and you have to take chemistry and you have to bring them all into one holy science. And the only way that you're going to truly understand all of those sciences is if you look at them as a whole as a whole science. Well, the only way that you can possibly look at all of those sciences as a whole science is through a language. Well, that language has been given to us. It's been given to us right on our hands. It's been given to us as when we look out at the sun, we look out at the plants. It's math and geometry. When somebody is intelligent, when somebody's like considered a genius, like a Leonardo da Vinci kind of guy, what are they called? They're called a polymath. They're called a polymath. Poly means many, which means they know many maths. <laughs> You know, so that's that's what I see. The Holy Bible and a lot of these other religious texts are mystical documents. They are full of allegory. They are full of astrology. They're they're full of etymology and linguistics and numerology and gematria and Kabbalah and that sort of stuff. Ultimately, trying to tell you about your salvation, about death and resurrection of the soul, turning lead into gold, if you will, and ultimately they're bringing all the sciences into one. And that's how I see it. Which basically could just be called nature, right? Because it's the, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the utmost system where everything is brought to bear. But I would point out, um, a lot of people have gone on the record pointing out some of the modern belief systems where they're wholly geared towards getting a person to surrender their power. In other words, you can't do this on your own. You need this. Or if you don't subscribe to this, you can't move forward. Um, and then the flip side of that kind of a point of view would be, hey, wait a minute. I'm a divine human being. I can do anything any other human being that's ever been here has done. Um, and there's a real... A real recognition to be made there, because so many things, even when you were a child in school taking the Pledge of Allegiance, in a way, that is getting you to sacrifice some of your power away from yourself, some of your own decision-making ability or things that you would do as a human being, well, I'm pledging allegiance to this other entity. Uh, many religions have this facet in it, and I saw it broken down recently, and I thought that is a really good outline of someone who wants to look at the place we are holistically or piecemeal it down to the point where they don't even recognize that any power any human being has ever had is at their disposal. This is okay when uh, kind of coming full circle back to the the notion that, you know, I came into this the 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 Christian practice, if you will, through Gnosticism, through a study of nature, which is ultimately a study of, of math and geometry, right? You know, I came to the understanding that, no, Christ is—the whole idea of Christ is is literally, literally exactly opposite of what the, the Church teaches and what all of these—I especially see a lot of flat earthers promulgating, that Christ is—Christ, oh, that guy? Oh, yeah, he lived about 2,000 years ago. I'm just going to sit around and wait till he comes back, and then about 144,000 of you will be saved when you just put all of your faith and love into this man, right? And the whole point is, no, the power— of that of that Christ character is actually lives and breathes within you. And that is actually gives you the fortitude, the strength, the the spiritual power, which comes where does it come from? Where does that spiritual power come from? It comes from the state. No, it comes from the government. No, it comes from God. Right. And that and that connection is right within you. And that is actually supposed to be supposed to be. Once again, we're getting back to the perversion of all these things. It's supposed to be the power of Christianity, the Christ within you. You know, Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. 
you know, um, you know, basically all of these notions that that power of that savior character is actually in you. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? That is actually the true power of Christianity. But what do we see nowadays? We see the perversion of it. We see kid fuckers in the Vatican, you know? <laughs> well, I would point out that um, for, for so many groups of people who read a text literally, uh, it literally says, and almost every version of the Bible I've ever picked up, that seek the kingdom of God within. Mm-hmm. Anyone who knows anything about the anatomy of the human body understands there's temples on either side of your head. These things are not lost on a thinking individual, and it does go to show how easily we are swayed. And again, um, you know, there are plenty of books out there that people could at least look at to see other ideas um, that include the idea of natural sciences. One of those books is The Devil's Pulpit um, Mm -hmm. by the Reverend Robert Taylor, who was trained up to basically a PhD at the divinity level by the Vatican, and then by chance got his hands on one of two copies of the highest Masonic text, and then started to put it all together, and he wrote those books. It's called The Devil's Pulpit because the Catholic Church then vilified him, jailed him twice, uh, accused him of blasphemy for trying to state what he perceived as the truth, holding this high Masonic work and having studied the Bible to the PhD level, basically. Um, And that's all put out in plain sight for the book. But you see, what's really revealed in works like that is that this is not peculiar to Christianity. You can go to any other major religion if you have a way to bridge the cultural understanding these, what I will call natural ideas of natural sciences, probably used to be called alchemy, maybe. Um, it was put in all of them. But Jason, we're getting close to the top of the hour. Is there anything you want to get in here before we uh, take a break for the first hour? Well, I find it interesting that even Christianity, according to mainstream history, started off as a secret society. And I believe so were the Gnostics. And I was wondering what Marty thinks about that and how it got basically turned into a mainstream religion. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, trying to suss out the history of all this sort of stuff is very difficult because a lot of people say, oh, yeah, Christianity was like the the religion of the Roman Empire and things like that. I, you know, I to me, history is the set of lies agreed upon kind of thing. So it's really hard for me to suss that out. But a lot of times these things will start out as I mean, if, if you look at Jesus Christ in the myth, in the in the stories, right, if you look at Jesus Christ and his 12 disciples, that was essentially a secret society. You know, they went out and they taught things, but they even he even said, it's like, hey, there's a bunch of you people that are not going to get this. And the people that are will be will be ushered into the kingdom of heaven. You know, in that sort of sense, the secret society has created itself naturally. Why? Because there there are people that refuse by their own standards, by their own will and their own uh, personal constitutions. They refuse to look at the mysteries. Right. Flat Earth is a perfect example of this, right? How many people, or or at least questioning the cosmology, right? How many people have for years now been handed all the information, all the necessary things to clearly show that we're being lied to about where we live, the you know the the history of the world, things like that? And what do they do? They they shut it all off, and they choose by their own willpower. They choose not to look at this stuff. So in that sort of sense, a secret society is almost created naturally by the fact that, well, I mean, Jesus said it in in the Bible. He said, do not cast your pearls before swines. Why? Because people, by their own will, choose to be swines. That's how it is. 
that's a critical point. Um, the, some of the accounts from the older texts that I have read have stated outright that uh, modern religions, most of which are corporations these days, are designed to do one thing, and that is to let a person choose what level of society they belong to. In other words, you're going to be one of the masses, you're going to be a step up from there, a step up from there. The secret societies, of course, would consider themselves a few steps up. I take umbrage with some of that. But anyhow, for everyone listening, the second hour we're going to be able to say every time, every episode, more than we can say in the first, because of the censorship that is now in your face all over this world, not just this country, this world. I hope to see you all over at Crow777radio.com for the second hour. And please keep in mind, Jason and I have a new live show on Truth Frequency Radio Sunday nights at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, where there is a live show with a live chat. It's all free. You sign up, you're into the chat. It's for everyone. Anyhow, that does bring hour one of episode 127 to a close. We'll be back shortly with hour two. Cheers.